sing as one for this country we're walking on we stand together to protect this land for the future we're hand in hand welcome to another episode of the environmental as anything podcast now, on Environmental as Anything, we have an interview which I conducted with Professor Roberta Ryan from the University of Newcastle on the economic impact of establishing the Great Koala National Park. The Great Koala National Park is proposed as Australia's first large national park dedicated to protecting koala habitat. The park will add 175,000 hectares of native forests to existing protected areas to establish a 315,000 hectare reserve on the New South Wales mid-north coast. The site is delimited by the boundaries of two metapopulations of koalas, the Coffs Harbour Guy Fawkes and Bellinger Nambucca Maclay metapopulations, which contain up to 4,550 koalas or approximately 20% of the New South Wales koala population. The proposed park stretches across five local government areas, Coffs Harbour, Clarence Valley, Bellingen, Nambucca and Kempsey. The University of Newcastle's study of the proposed Great Koala National Park comprised two areas of focus, an economic impact assessment and an environmental benefit analysis. Over these two areas, the research demonstrated that the park would generate additional regional economic output of $1.2 billion over the next 15 years and $1.7 billion in biodiversity value. Professor Ryan is the Pro Vice-Chancellor of Human and Social Futures at Newcastle University. She is a political sociologist. She brings extensive experience in applied public policy, research and evaluation, with particular strengths in working with sub-national governments around Australia and internationally. Her work is focused upon strategically positioning local and regional governance as key to ongoing regional prosperity. And she was lead author of this groundbreaking report. Professor Ryan, thank you very much for joining Environmental as Anything today. It's a great pleasure to be here. You've just done some groundbreaking research into the Great Koala National Park. Uh, you've done uh, an economic and environmental uh, benefit analysis. Uh, what was the gist of your findings? Yeah, what we were asked to do was have a look at the uh, area that was proposed by the National Parks Association in about 2013 uh, to establish Great Koala National Park that covers those five relevant LGAs and look at what are the costs of establishing the park, what are the benefits and what might the up economic uplift from establishing the Great Koala National Park be. So that sort of analysis, it's really a pretty straightforward economic impact assessment analysis uh, does a whole lot of things around making assumptions in terms of looking at what might be establishment costs uh, for the establishment of the park. So we looked at that over a three-year period uh, and then looked at an operational period for the park in terms of that kind of 15-year period. So all of the numbers are calculated using case studies of what's been done and how costs are calculated for establishing different kinds of elements for a park, you know, setting up trails, mapping the ecology, setting up visitor centres. So there's a whole lot of detail behind the assumptions 
And then we took a whole, you know, a bunch of kind of what I'd call mid-range estimates. It's all there for people to have a look at. And really it's to just get a handle on what it would it cost? What would the operating costs be? What might the uplift be? And that's calculated according to the number of visitors that we estimate would be attracted. So to just give you the kind of very high-level findings, in very ballpark terms, the costs of establishing the park in the five LGAs we estimated to be around about the 300 million mark. We estimate that that will lead to around about a million visitors at the end of the 15-year period and that that visitation would generate in the order of $1.8 billion in economic output for the region. Now, they're obviously very large numbers and there's a lot of assumptions in those and they're very conservative and there's some provisos around that. But that's just to give a sense, I think, of the kind of big picture numbers and really those numbers are... Well, those numbers are based on estimations of visitor numbers, visitor spend, as well as the kind of time periods that would be covered and, you know, as I said, the estimate of the costs. So that's, I think, a key part of the the story. But really the, the real story in this, and these numbers have not been calculated for the Great Kalar National Park before. Um, these kinds of studies are done it's what's called a standard input-output modelling approach, pretty pretty basic kind of economic models. It's all about the assumptions you put into these models, of course, so there's a lot of discussion about that. The real story that's come out of this is the jobs generation. At the end of the 15-year period, we estimate about 10,000 jobs will be created. Now, that's a terrific job story, I think, for the mid-north coast. These are jobs that are a variety of jobs. There's the sort of, I guess, the construction building bit, which is short-term. Then there's the operational jobs. Then there's the hospitality jobs. But tourism and national parks is a much bigger kind of job question, I think. There's you know, the education opportunities Uh, There's the scientific study stuff. Uh, There's the ecological jobs that are created. Uh, So there's a a real range of job opportunities and I think really uh, ongoing high-value jobs. So that number was, I think, a pleasing result uh, for an area, of course, where, you know, um, whenever I think is really interested in regional jobs growth. So um, that was why I think that's a real standout from the report. Absolutely. And, and, I mean, in in that job story, there's... um there's a comparison with the number of jobs which might need to be uh, uh, transitioned out of uh, uh, native forest logging. And I think the, the number came to 675 jobs. Is that right? That's right. Now, look, there's been a lot of discussion about the uh, job estimates for the uh, potential impact on the native, uh, native forest logging. We were very lucky to engage with the Timber Association. Uh, there'd been some work done by a uh, um, a consulting firm that provided us some numbers uh, from which we were able to base our estimates. Um, the work that they'd done covered a much larger uh, geography, so bringing it down was to say, well, what, what would it look like in these five LGAs? Um, but we estimate, look, you know, mid-range conservative figures of about 700 job losses compared to potentially 10,000 jobs created. You know, even if we should have uh, factored it by two, we're still in a, in a really significant quantum, I think. There's no impact on renewable forestry uh, as a result of uh, the establishment of the park. It's really about, well, what do we do with native forestry? We've had the opportunity to uh, transition these industries in other parts of Australia. Of course, it's a quite a high-profile issue, as you appreciate, in terms of, you know, Tasmania, uh, in terms of Eden. So we, we 
calculated into the economic costs, both the costs of the, uh, the transition agreements as well as the costs of the buyback agreements. So in those numbers I quoted earlier, the $30 million for buyback agreements. So now, all, of that, probably, all of those costs of buying back the industry, buying back their contracts, et cetera, that's all included in correct. the establishment. Yep. Yeah, that's right. So that was, we calculated that as part of the costs. But what we... What we wanted to say here, I think, is that, you know, it was agreed that you'd have to factor in the cessation of native logging as part of the establishment of the park. So we wanted to make sure as part of the cost and benefit analysis that we looked at what the impact would be. The piece of work that we're talking about here is a pretty basic, dry, count the numbers, make some assumptions and see what the kind of quantum of the figures looks like at the end. Yeah. We have relied on the work that the industry itself's done to to draw the lines around that. In terms of visitation and the tourism, um, the Mid-North Coast, as those of people who are there will know, is the third most visited place in Australia. So there's a lot of opportunity to build on an existing tourism offer. There's a lot of interest in ecotourism. People's ambitions for their tourism experiences, I think, are really are changing, you know, there's the connection to place, there's all the things we're getting more and more familiar with around the benefits of being in nature for people's mental health. And I think um, one of the things that was fantastic for us was to be able to engage with the local Aboriginal communities, not, not as much as we could have done um, or would like to do, but in, in the end, it's my view, this needs to be driven by their connection to place, uh, this their country, and, and I think it's a fantastic opportunity uh, for local Aboriginal communities to, to really uh, make of this place what they want and really uh, treat it as, as a cultural uh, as well as an economic resource for their future. So there's a lot of things that an economic study doesn't pick up. You know, no. I, I think of the sort of social, uh, the kind of uh, the sort of human connection benefits I mean, you can study that and we do those kind of work, but this one was an economic piece, but I think there's a, there's a whole piece of work around articulating, you know, the benefits of national parks. Yeah, that cultural are, that are Yeah, absolutely. And people's capacity to generate connections to country and place to uh, really shape their engagement with their place uh, in a way that is about the way they want to do it, that's not being imposed from outside. So there's a... I really think there's a there's a you know there's a whole lot of the, the job story is fantastic the economic uplift I think is fantastic but there's a whole kind of social cultural piece that I think could be also uh, assessed about why a national park in this area could be of significant benefit to these communities. An interesting avenue to explore in future hopefully. I, I actually wanted yeah. to drill down a little bit more into some of the other figures there because that I wasn't quite clear about the distinction which was made which you said the park would generate additional regional economic output of 1.2 billion dollars over the next 15 years and 1.7 billion in biodiversity value. Can you tease out for me what that is? We were very interested in understanding how do people value biodiversity. Now I could get my head around that, I'd win the Nobel Prize. There's a few ways this has been done. So what we did was basically what's called a meta-study. So we looked at how it's been done in all different contexts and how the numbers are applied in all different contexts, and we uh, we applied them into this context. So it's, it's what's called a proxy value. So if I say to you, how much do you value good quality aged care? You might say, 
as a proxy, I'm prepared to pay $200 a year, extra taxes to ensure that we have good quality aged care. So these study, these kinds of, we, we say, look, I think aged care is important or I think the environment's important, but we, uh, well, economists use dollars as a proxy, uh, as a way of sort of giving a sense of what does that value mean. It's commonly used around the valuation of, great, of the Great Barrier Reef. So there's a whole lot of studies that are done that say, if you live on the Great Barrier Reef or you earn income from the Great Barrier Reef, what are you prepared to pay to protect it versus people who might live in Western Australia or never go there? Or, so there's a whole lot of, again, assumptions. So we, we did a meta study to say what number would be a reasonable number to say for people in New South Wales and then for people in Australia, what dollar value based on that meta-analysis would they place on the establishment of the Great Koala National Park? We, we said roughly between two and 300 as a one-off. We estimated that that proxy value was around the 530 million for the New South Wales community and 1.7 billion for Australians. We know people do value uh, biodiversity, even if they're never going to step foot in the park. Mm. It's like, uh, I mean, in a, in a way, I guess this comes from a discussion about, um, you, you know, do, we, do any of us really want to see the extinction of koalas in the wild in New South Wales? If, as that debate gets ahead of steam and we're looking at the impacts of the bushfires, which were devastating, of course, on the mid-north coast, uh, the impact of the bushfires on particularly high-quality koala habitat, um, the other broad ecological threats that koalas face, you know, I think those numbers are pretty conservative because I think there is a sense, it's, I mean, I certainly feel like myself about the Great Barrier Reef, it would be a pretty shocking day to wake up to mm. say that we haven't protected these important assets. And one way of talking about those is to put a dollar value on them. It's an important economic process to, to make those assessments and it sounds like it's, a, it's a, quite a rigorous and, and, as you say, conservative estimates that you're making. One of the things that I, I'd like to uh, just draw out is there's there's another proposed koala park, the proposed Sandy Creek Koala Park. It's a 7,000 hectare park proposed on um, uh, public land southwest of Casino, north of Grafton. It's obviously similar in uh, some respects. Do you think that the methods that you've used, uh, you know, and you know, in general terms, could be used as a technique for assessing the the similar values for uh, for such a, a park, is that going to? Would that be a simple sort of a, a template proposition for you to now do for for that? Yeah, yeah. Look, these studies are a fairly standard and agreed methodology. Um, the work from uh, the researcher's point of view is working through the assumptions. So you end up with saying, well, what does a visitor centre cost to build? You know, is it going to be half a million to four million? What is this visitor centre going to look like? What's a midpoint? All the spreadsheets always sit against this, but it's so you're making you're making judgments about how much stuff you put in the park. The, the costs of uh, the mapping is quite a hard one because um, that will have changed post bushfires. So yeah, these are pretty standard uh, inputs. And then you make a judgment about where the midpoint is in terms of calculating the number. But this has been done, this approach has been applied to national parks all around the country. It's a, it's a, and that, what they call an IO model, that economic input output modelling is just, just, it's actually just a standard model. You just stick in, all models depend on the assumption you put in, but you just stick in the numbers and out it pops. But, but uh, the work's in the assumptions. And so you've got to have the conversations have got to be around, well, 
uh, you know, uh, what do we know about how much the trails might cost? So we, you know, we really make sure that estimates are rigorous. So, yes, it's once you make those assumptions, the work and the time is in the assumptions and the conversations and, and, and so on, and then, and then the, the kind of numbers, the numbers pop out. No, oh, well, that's good. Well, we must, must sort of direct you a, a copy of the proposal, see what you think. Right. Yeah, yeah. Be great. It's, yeah, I mean, look, it's it's all in the discussion. I mean, you know, should it be a three or a five year establishment period? Why fifteen years? You know, it, it's it's partly because you want a ten. We wanted a ten year period to calculate the numbers. Um, you know, uh, some of the data from the government is more readily available than others, but we rely on you know peer reviewed published sources and all that kind of stuff. So. In, you know, as I, I've been saying in some of the media, even if the numbers were out by point number two, which they're not, but even if they were, this is really just giving you a steer to say, you know, there's, there's potentially a lot of visitation here and there's potentially a lot of jobs growth. Um, mm. and, and I think quality, interesting jobs. And then there's potentially all those extra things about people, you know, creating regions in the way they want and really... Um, you know, making the, the Mid-North Coast a really distinctive place, which it is. And so there's, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of great starting points, I think, for thinking about the, the potential value of the establishment of Great Koala National Park. And, and that's aside from the obvious, you know, kind of ecological opportunity and the reason the National Parks Association set up, you know, proposed the suggestion for where it is, is because it's where the two big uh, mega populations of koalas exist. And, and I do think it's challenging for people to appreciate that it has, to, and, and I've been asked this question a lot in these discussions about why is it so big? Because it is big. I mean, 315,000 hectares is a big national park. Um, mm. In, I mean, Australia's a big place, but it's a big national park. Yeah. Um, but it's because, and again, I'm not an ecologist, but it's because the koalas, well, a lot of species, need quite large areas to move. Mm. I think in in people who live in urban areas see koalas on the urban fringe and think, you know, a few koalas up a tree is a great thing to see, which it is, but um, that's probably not a healthy situation for a lot of koalas. Um, they need big licks of land to move around, all the sort of genetic things we're seeing, all of that. You know, so this kind of commitment, I think, at an ecological level in terms of what is known about biodiversity preservation um, and diverse ecological communities requires you know, a big move here to protect these koalas. This isn't going to be bits of peri-urban um, land protected. Mm. Uh, well, I mean, all of that can, of course, be helpful and contribute, but the reality is if, if we're coming back from the brink, which was then pushed further because of the bushfires, the park will have to be a significant scale. Yeah, ecological arguments have always been pretty clear. Uh, from yeah where we stand but the economic arguments are now uh, crystal clear for it thank you and so we'll we'll uh, hopefully see the state government start to take some economically rational decisions and to protect the koalas for us from now on i hope that happens yes well thank you so much uh, for your time today professor ryan we really appreciate uh, your expertise and uh, putting all the hard work you've done into this amazing report oh look, it's a great pleasure thanks very much sean that was Professor Roberta Ryan from the University of Newcastle, Australia, speaking on the Great Koala National Park Economic Impact Analysis and Environmental Benefit Assessment Report, which she recently supervised. Ooh, ooh, ooh.
save our old growth forests? Who will keep our rivers wild for all time and for all people? Too precious to plunder. Ancient trees and deep rainforest, sacred stones and creatures wild for all time and for all people too precious to That was Twisted Folk from the Lock On CD with that beautiful song, Too Precious to Plunder. Seemed very appropriate after that conversation with Professor Ryan about the economic value of the Great Koala National Park. Wendy Bacon says of herself, I am an investigative journalist who is also a political activist. This means that I want my journalism to be useful to those who resist abuses of power and seek social justice rather than supporting existing power structures, which is what most journalism does. My emphasis is on information that I hope will empower people to take action. She has been hard at it for decades now, uh, a Walkley Award winner, head of the journalism program at the University of Technology, Sydney, and a legend in the Australian media sphere. I was deeply honoured that she accepted my call and spoke to me about the threat to democracy and to the environment posed by the Murdoch criminal empire. Wendy Bacon, thank you so much for joining Environmental as Anything today. It's a pleasure, Sean. Great to be here. I've had your report, uh, uh, Lies, Debates and Silences, How News Corps Produces Climate Scepticism in Australia, on my desk for the last month. Actually killed my printer, printing it out. But uh, it's it makes some pretty amazing reading. You've done extraordinary work uh, in investigating uh, how News Corps does produce this climate scepticism. Can you, can you sum it up? <laughs> how does it happen? Well, look, I think, first of all, this is a content analysis. So what we looked at was one full year of everything that related to climate change in the Herald Sun, the Daily Telegraph, the Korea Mail and the Australian. So it is a content analysis. So when you're doing that, you're looking at different things. Now, I guess a key 
headline finding and and what you do is you code it and then you crunch the data and my partner in this was Arun Jagan and we also had 20 volunteers who were trained to do the work so I think the key line you know the key finding uh, we've got a whole lot of key findings but I think the key one was that 45 percent of all that content. Now we did include letters as well as you know comment pieces, editorials, news, features. 45% is either outright skeptical about climate science or deliberately cast doubt upon the findings. So skeptical, some of it absolutely denying, others just sort of raising doubt in people's minds. Now, when you think about it, this is really shocking because studies, and these are now out of date, it will be stronger now, so let's say 90% of all published papers about climate change, published peer-reviewed scientific papers, all accept that we are not only in a situation of global warming, but we're in an existential crisis, we're in an absolutely desperate situation now. So in the light of that, in the light of those funding findings, we have a situation which the most powerful media company in Australia chooses, particularly through its columnists, to deliberately produce doubt in people's minds. So I think that's just a key finding. The worst of those publications, but none of them are good, the worst was the Daily Telegraph, which is very big in Sydney, but also, of course, with the web just goes everywhere as well as Sydney, and that was 55, so more than half of its content actually debunked climate science findings. It's, yes, as you say, I, mean, I, think it's, I think it's up to 98% of climate scientists yeah. now agree that Climate change is real, it's human cause, and it's an, an existential threat to our civilization. And, and yet we have the Murdoch media, the Murdochracy uh, coming out with these, these essentially what are lies, aren't they? I mean, essentially. They are lies. And, and I think it's particularly shocking. Oh, well, there's lots of aspects of it that are shocking. Uh, one thing I would mention is that comment is now, or comment opinion is very powerful in it's cheap to produce, it's very strident, and it's very powerful in the media. So we could say the top 10 opinion writers in those four publications are all, all either sceptic or extremely hostile to uh, action on climate change. So that's all. Now, of them, the most powerful is Bolt. He's extremely powerful, Andrew Bolt. And, of course, he goes not only into those publications but also up the coast, up to the Townsville Bulletin and, and that sort of thing as well, over to the Adelaide Advertiser. So, you know, he is very powerful, but I think it's a mistake for people to think it's only him. It's yeah. also a person called Peter Credlin. It's also Chris Kenny. It's also in Brisbane. Some people may have heard of a journalist called Peter Gleeson, hmm. who's very hostile as well. Yes, that's right. I mean, I think I was shocked when I saw the headline that uh, that Andrew Blott uh, accounted for 12% of all of the, the News Corp's uh, uh, you know, articles, all articles yes, in all those publications were twelve percent of them were by Andrew Blight. It's amazing, isn't it? And we did not actually include his blog. I mean, there's a bit of an overlap with his opinion pieces in his blog, but we didn't count all the hundreds of smaller posts um, as well as as well as that. But it's actually, I think, in the Herald Sun. 
um, which is in Melbourne, the Herald Sun, it was nearly a third of all their items. And, of course, it's very prominently displayed both online and in print. Mm. And then often these days what you find is that it's linked to various Sky News shows. So people lately will have been hearing a bit about Craig Kelly, the MP who's promoting um, views which are um, sort of raising all sorts of doubt about COVID-19 yeah. and all of that. Yeah. Um, he was introduced by Bolt in one item as the person in the Australian Parliament who knows most about climate science. So people are really being fed lies. The other thing I wanted to mention was um, two other things. One is the letters. Well, people might think, well, the letters aren't very significant, but actually they are. They're often quite short and they get in many letters and then it's actually journalists who select what's going to be published. So they select these really outrageous um, letters very often that are actually abusing climate scientists, abusing environmental activists and just inspiring hate and hysteria. Mm. Now, they... Um, they accuse, um, they use, there's all sorts of language and we actually analyse the language that's used to describe those who want to take action on climate change. And it's very much things like they're climate dogmatists, they're climate warmers, they're climate cult hysterics. Mm. So this is really feeding a very divisive attitude. And then my third point there would be that Yes, it is true that most journalists do do accept climate science. You know, you might say, thank God for that. But <laughs> but actually, even in the news coverage, there's some very bad examples. Um, people will remember that during the bushfire period, they promoted a narrative about this was all arsonists. You know, these are a few people out lighting fires. Mm. Now, in the context of quoting someone accusing arsonists of being the cause, they, who do they go to for a scientist to balance but a person called Ian Plymer, no. who's a person who had mining interests, a geologist who is an out and out, completely rejects climate science. So he's then quoted as an authority. So if you're out there and you're not in the know about all of this, you're reading that and you, you read, oh, so this scientist is saying, he agrees with this. Mm. So even in the news, you know, the journalists are implicated. If you're mm. a journalist and you do that, and I am a journalist, and you do that, you know exactly what you're doing. You're yeah. not naive about it. No, I mean, I've been saying for a while, it's not the journalist's job to, to, to present a balance between truth and lies. You know, it's not, oh, we've got the truth here, we better get some liars in to balance that up. And that seems to be what the, the Murdochracy does that's what they seem that seems to be their editorial policy yes and i think sean that that has been critiqued a lot um in the past in media studies about climate change this whole idea that for years even the new york times did it certainly the wall street journal where they would sort of say oh well we have to go to a skeptic to do balance actually I've done two earlier studies about a decade ago which came to similar sorts of findings. But what we found is that's less of a strategy now. It's more of this hate type of language. It's more of the opinion pieces. And then articles which don't even have more than one source anyway, so they're just one-dimensional, even a lot of the, what you could call more positive coverage, like it might be something to do with some solar 
thing and the word climate change will be mentioned. It'll just be like a puff piece, a PR piece. So you can't say it's negative, but it, it, there's very little coverage, very little indeed, indeed that actually looks at what the impacts of climate change are. Almost nothing on the Pacific at all. Very little on heat which is a very big killer, particularly a big problem in, in is going to be in big cities, a very big problem. And, of course, very little on things like um, ocean warming, effect on the reef and all that sort of thing, almost negligible. You can yeah. forget about it, really. And, and so there's been a, a lot of people uh, concerned about this, you know, half a million signatures uh, on the petition for a, a royal commission into News Corps. And a, a lot of people, as you said in the introduction to the report, more, for more than 30 years, News Corps, uh, dominance of the uh, media market has been seen by many commentators as a threat to our democracy. H how do you see that threat, uh, you know, really playing out here? Well, I see it's playing out not well at the moment. Um, look, it, I think it's important to know that we're not talking about one year. We are talking, as you said, because we've got the earlier studies and because other studies have been done by political scientists called Robert Mann and others, we know that we're now talking about 20 years. And I found some outlandish things said by our, Andrew Bolt's been working for News Corp since 1997. So from then onwards, there's a lot of very bad stuff that just built up and up. Now, I think a lot of Australians know this is a serious problem. Like when you have your most powerful um, media company, like the role of the media is meant to be to produce information, increase understanding, etc. Now, I think it's very heartening that half a million um, Australians, but it's not so heartening, I think, when... Look, our report was released in mid-December. That's a very bad time from a media point of view. But it is really interesting that it's almost greeted with silence. Not a word on the ABC about it, um, certainly not Nine Media, not even The Guardian. And that was disappointing. But I think journalists are intimidated from actually speaking about it because what happens if... If they take on Murdoch, believe me, they get bullied. We can just see how Murdoch is constantly campaigning against the ABC. Yep. So I think that has a chilling effect, and that's why it's so good that some that I think it really is up to community media. It is up to all of us in the extent to which we use social media maybe to share understandings of it. But I'm hoping that the um, there's a Senate committee or intermedia diversity um, unfortunately, because of our deadline, I didn't put a submission into that, but I'm hoping, well, I have had a look at the ones that are there, and unfortunately, that's not good news either when I've read the submissions. Very little. I mean, people have to speak the truth. We yeah. have to speak the truth to power about this. And unfortunately, most people are sort of worried, and that's why the importance, I think, of our report is that it is it is quantitative. It's also qualitative, but we have hard data there. And all of that hard data replicates earlier studies. It's not like we've come to some surprising conclusion. And we have looked at a complete sample. We haven't done random sampling, anything like that. So I'm hoping that very soon at the moment, people, maybe you can put on your website, but there is a PDF that can be downloaded off GetUp's site. Now, I need to say GetUp published this report, but we were commissioned independently, Arun and I, to do it with the help of GetUp volunteers. Now, we, we did this completely independently. 
fairly shortly we will have this on the web just as a uh, website and then I think it's going to be a lot easier to get around some of the specific findings so I'm certainly not going to stop um, talking about it and I hope that people listening will just really mention it to people and say, oh, you know, have you seen that? Or just talk about it, you know, because really that is probably one of the most important things. And also to keep behind um, the push for something to be done about it because, you know, it's not enough to say like some of the I guess you could say media reformers say, well, what we need is local subsidies for some media where it's all been wiped out. I mean, rural media is now appalling, but so is suburban media in yeah. Sydney um, also, I can tell you. Yeah. So it's not enough just a little bit of a tax break there or something like that. We really have to take on the fact that these people are spreading false information and there has to be some accountability I wonder about the. Um, I mean, that, that's all. That's fantastic, and I'm sure that the listeners will want, want to will hear what you're saying and want to be uh, to spread the word about this because it is an extraordinarily uh, you know thorough and and detailed uh, analysis that I was incredibly impressed with. Um, the um, the 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 idea that, uh, that 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 they spread around that the murdocracy tends to to emphasise is oh social media is the end of the world and that everything on social media whereas what you've just described is is them committing exactly the same sins that they accuse social media of doing of you know highlighting conflict and creating uh, you know like dishonest uh, dis discussions which aren't really debate false debates and um, I've been thinking wondering if there's a, if there's a process that we can get where we can actually make enforceable media standards like at the moment it's all a voluntary code of conduct and it's only only applicable to the media outlets uh, in in the the, you know, the old media I'm just wondering if there's any step forward that we can take to go well let's get that code of conduct and actually make it mandatory make truth a legal requirement <laughs> well I think it's it's really come to people looking at that as a possibility and you might remember some list it's depending on how old they are, but now I think it's probably about seven years ago since a person called Ray Finkelstein did an independent report into the media. And you may remember that he recommended an independent body, not beholden to government at all, an independent body that could uh, look at accountability and look at standards. Now, the, the hysterical um, treatment of that report by not only Murdoch but by um, Fairfax or Nine Media, it's called now as well, which is Sydney Morning Herald, The Age, um, of course, up uh, in Brisbane, Korea Mail, some states where it's only Murdoch, and then we have Nine Media as well. They just reject any interference, any interference at all. And not only that, when people dared to speak up in the universities, in journalism education, which I was in then, they published articles saying you're an unethical person and all of that. But, but we have to stand up to that. And I think we have to talk about something that's stronger than the Australian Press Council. Now, the Australian Press Council is a very, very cautious conservative body, which is funded by the um, employers, but they have made findings against Bolt. Yeah. And, but it really doesn't make any difference to him because actually, look, at the end of the day, I don't think the issue is Bolt or Chris Kenny or anyone else. The issue is that we have a company 
that chooses to put a large amount of resources into funding lies. And that's why I'm a little bit sceptical when I'm looking at all of this that's going on about the bargaining code and Google versus, you know, we have to sort of push back against Google. And I'm no fan of Google, and I do think they've got a huge amount of power. We can all attempt to diversify from that with other search engines and that sort of thing. But I'm pretty sceptical because I really think, isn't this interesting that this is all happening at a time when half a million people want us to be talking about Murdoch and there's sort of silence about that. Oh, you know, I'm hoping that we can make sure it is raised at the Senate committee but and encourage everyone to encourage them to at least look at the information before them or, or seek information. So, yeah, I think that um, definitely reform is needed, but it's a pretty, um, I don't want to be depressing, but it is a bit depressing because actually people have been saying for maybe 40 years that, um, that we allowed News Corp to get too dominant. When you think they have the only metropolitan paper in Tasmania, South Australia and Queensland and the Northern Territory, and now they've also gone into a sharing um, situation with Seven West Media that dominates in Western Australia. So it's not, it's not good enough. And really, it's not good enough for a few quite well-off, educated people in Melbourne and Sydney to have more diversity in media than anyone else. No, no. You know, it's really not okay. No, no. Well, I mean, I think the bright spot uh, that I picked out of the report, and we, we should wrap it up. I know we've got uh, limits on the time, but uh, uh, News Corp's audience and revenue is declining. Uh, you know, they are under pressure from all sides. And Rupert Murdoch is, uh, like like all of us, he's not getting any younger. Uh, <laughs> eventually, it's going to have to change, isn't it? Yeah. I think so, and, of course, that's probably why I'm a bit um, ambivalent about more money to prop them up because um, uh, Michael West, who's an independent journalist, he's got his own website. It's That's worth people looking at too, michaelwestbiz.com, I think it is. Yeah. Um, he's done some very funny videos about, you know, there actually are uh, losing money and um, the sooner I think I've come to the point even though I know journalists are employed by them I've come to the point that really they're so damaging to Australian society that the sooner they're over the better. All right well I think we're going to have to leave it there Wendy thank you so much for your insights that's uh, powerful and, uh, and, and informative stuff thank you for all of that. Thank you for inviting me Sean. That was legendary Aussie journalist and activist Wendy Bacon discussing with me her report, Lies, Debates and Silences, on how News Corps produces climate scepticism in Australia. Well, I was flying out of Sydney, it was close to the end of time. When I heard somebody yapping, it was Miranda Devine Coming out of first class, her tongue was sharper than a sword Said I demand to see the captain, there are terrorists on board I looked around in terror, but there was nothing to see Then I saw who she was pointing at, the terrorist was me Had no choice, I took it, had to commandeer the plane Told the captain it's a hijack, take me to the Ukraine Miranda says I'm telling Rupert this is front page news You know he's gonna get you, he's got your meter daughter too The pilot started yelling, he was nervous as a horse He said to hell with Rupert Murdoch, this plane is changing course 
As we flew over the ocean, there was a message from back home. It was the Prime Minister. He was confused and alone. He wasn't making any sense. He kept talking about a war, but he forgot which side he was supposed to be fighting for. There was a war for freedom, but he'd taken all the rights of the people he was protecting, except for the Danes and the Knights. It was a war against entitlement, but the titles were all owned by the richest and the quickest to the phone. Things were getting hairy, we were getting close to the void. Miranda says, you terrorists are all just paranoid. I said, look outside the window, the ice caps are almost gone. She said, that's new business opportunities being born. When we landed in the Ukraine, Mr. Putin met us at the door. He said, you're very welcome. Well, what you come here for? Don't you worry, little lady. The future's in my hands and you're a refugee now. I hope you understand. Your boxing kangaroo can't help you with your jet lag. He's shirt from Mother Nature, armed with a hundred flags. Outlining all the crimes perpetrated by the ABC to distract attention from his economic policies. But no island is a castle, no ocean can't be crossed, no person is a fossil, no possession can't be lost. There's a big world out there, you can't keep it from your door, and you ain't the lucky country anymore. Yeah! Representative of the world's most powerful man. Rupert's just like you, he hates the commies and the freaks, even the parrot with a bone in his beak. You and me were the gatekeepers of the vanilla frontier. It protects us from the indigenous, the muzzies, and the queers. They're always making jazz hands, making a big fuss. I haven't heard such nonsense since Copernicus. Well, if freedom means a luxury of denying it to others It don't matter if your freedom was stolen or discovered Vanilla's more of a flavor than a color And you're way too heavy to be my brother Well, I've heard enough, I turned around, jumped back aboard the plane Anyone can fly and it's just like a computer game Last thing I heard, Miranda's shirt fronting Mr. Putin But I got out of there before he started shooting Well, malice is a virtue and there's no value in the truth Compassion is high treason and there ain't no need to prove There ain't no need to worry, you got nothing to fear While Miranda Devine is guarding the vanilla frontier
Yeehaw! What could be better to follow up Wendy Bacon taking a chunk out of Rupert Murdoch than Mick Daly with Miranda Devine's Adventures on the Vanilla Frontier from his uh, Tiny Violins album. Thanks, Mick. Around 60 people and two actual koalas turned up on Sunday 31st of January for a peaceful protest and to see firsthand what's happening up the top of Rifle Range Road in Bangalore. Linda Sparrow, president of Bangalore Koalas, explained why they were concerned about the development going on on Rifle Range Road. So we're here today because this property up the top of 75 Rifle Range so they've got 99 acres, they've got a corridor of existing koala trees that are probably about 30 years old and with his DA that went in there was a, a restriction put on his title so that he couldn't do any works around koala habitat and to protect the, the, the habitat. The DA he's put in the moment is to actually put in a second driveway which is just a bit down from the existing one at the top here and that driveway is, is going right along the existing koala corridor. So we're talking about literally right beside it. The, the Byron Council's DCP that got adopted in December last year, there's now a 20 metre buffer of doing work along where koala habitat is. He has koalas there. They cross there regularly. I've seen them because mothers and joeys um, we've got the koala trees there and everything. The reason that this is we're here today is because this exhibition hasn't even closed yet and he's already started work on his driveway. And the biggest issue we have is he's actually cleared on the council land at the top of Rifle Range a whole lot of trees for his driveway. So we want people to put in submissions against this. We need council to hear our voices that we can't let this happen because if this happens and it passes, this is going to set a precedent which is going to affect all sorts of development across not just the Byron Shire, across the whole Northern Rivers. And we've got to protect our habitat. It is crucial. And it's crucial that we can't let developers just get away with doing what they want to do. We're just here so that you can see because you can read about it and it doesn't mean anything. But if you can actually go up there and see what he started to do, then you will be shocked. And I'll pass you over to Pete. So Pete, he lives here. So he's, he's got a first hand what's been happening here. Thank you, Linda. Bangalore resident Peter Doherty urged people to get their submissions in this week to help protect the koalas of the Bangalore area. Right, well, thanks for everyone turning up today. Um, we're definitely here because of koalas. That is our main aim, and that's the passion that we all have. And that's why, those years ago, we started Bangalore Koalas, because we saw them hanging in these trees and going, wow, isn't this amazing having my own backyard? So, what's happened up the road? Look, and I won't speak for too long, but we're all going to have a look. That broke my heart when I saw that. Came down here, getting totally devastated. I mean, that's been there all the time that we've lived here, though they've been there. Yes, I understand they're camphers, but we do now understand koalas do use camphers as shade trees, 
The second thing is obviously something you can all do to help is put in a submission against that DA up at 99 acres. Okay? It's already increased the amount of traffic that's going to go up the road. There'll be even more. The risk of losing koalas is obviously heartbreaking. So we don't want, we don't want that to happen. So if you go to the Bangalore Koalas Facebook site, there's all the information about the DA on there. And you can put your uh, submission in, you know, even if it's only two lines, but the more submissions we get, our goal is 100. So, you know, it's a good chunk of that 100 here today. So if we all put a submission in, we're going to get there. And hopefully we can uh, stop what's going on up, up the road. As we know, look, this whole area is full of developers trying to turn this area into, you know, the Gold Coast of the worst case scenario. So we don't want any of that. We want to keep these beautiful creatures that are under threat, you know. It was only last year, you know, we had bushfires and was wiping out the whole of the, the koala population. And then we've got this going up the road where people are not taking it seriously. He has a DA which doesn't even finish exhibition until the middle of next week. What does he decide to do? That. That was Bangalore resident Peter Doherty calling on community action to protect the koala corridor on Rifle Range Road in Bangalore. Benny Moore fell in love with bees at the age of 10 and when he was 14 he asked for a beehive. Luckily his parents agreed. In writing about his childhood, later career as a chef and how he went back into beekeeping, he details how he lived in outer suburban Melbourne, he's now in suburban Melbourne, and how he became an urban beekeeper and a bee helper. Ben's book is called For the Love of Bees. It's self-published. We have copies at the Lismore Environment Centre or you can get copies through Ben's site, www.bensbeesoneword.com. The book's a compilation of blogs from his wonderful site. And I encountered Ben just through his site. His enthusiasm and love of bees just literally leapt out through the uh, phone to me. And uh, that's why we had him on the Environmental Is Anything program a few weeks ago. Leaving aside obvious puns that this book is beautiful and sweet as honey, for the love of bees, it's a perfect gift for anyone who loves bees or is one of the fast-growing groups of people who are keen to explore beekeeping or sourcing a beekeeper to establish himself, establish hives on their property. It's not a guide to beekeeping in itself, uh, ben recommends the Australian Beekeeping Manual by Robert Owen for that, and Ben could put you onto it. But For the Love of Bees is a guide to almost everything you've ever wanted to know about bees, and it contains chapters as well on bees and beekeeping, pests and diseases, and other useful information for a potential beekeeper before you take the plunge. Uh, it's not a cheap book, but... Um, self-published books in Australia are rarely cheap but it's $35 and it's worth every single cent. Every page in this book has a wow factor to it such as discussing the history of honey gathering. Did you know humans have been collecting wild honey for at least 15,000 years and there's evidence of domestication i.e. hive keeping of honeybees going back 9,000 years. 
Honey's been used in the past as now for food, cooking and medicinal use. Beeswax was used for writing tablets, waterproofing and in ancient versions of cosmetics, adhesives, medicines, paints and in the embalming of mummies. By the 6th century, beekeeping had become such an industry that in Greece a law was brought in to regulate the location of hives. Now in Australia, of course, Indigenous peoples had been uh, honey gatherers for millennia utilising their incredible knowledge of seasons and flowerings, which is only just getting the respect it's due. We've had European honeybees and the domesticated hive system here from the early 1820s and the pollination that they serve, uh, their service of pollinating plants, is said to be worth 4 to $6 billion to our economy which is well conceivable um, if, as Ben claims, 70 of the top 100 uh, food plants are pollinated by bees. Now, there's everything you want to know about bees in this book. There's 1,700 species of our native bees, ranging in size from a tiny 2 millimetre to a 2.6 millimetre, and a lot of people are starting to keep native bees either because they want to um, harvest the honey, which is known as sugar bag. It's in limited quantities compared to the commercial European honeybees or whether people are just simply wanting to help conserve them. And they're just beautiful little guys. Most sting, but not to the extent of the European counterparts. And, uh, yes, yeah, so this chapter's on the native bees. Um with all the bees do for humanity, whether through the provision of honey or through the pollination of trees and plants, it's no surprise that every culture and every religion has a special recognition of them. And the discussion of this in the book is another wow factor. Um, now, as I said, bees apparently pollinate 70 of the top 100 food plants uh, yet we are putting them through a lot of trouble worldwide um, through a number of dangerous practices which are discussed towards the end of the book. There's also solutions proposed and a simple thing of how you can help honeybees or help all bees. And uh, other wow factors, the internal workings of hives. Did you know that all worker bees are females? I didn't know that either. Anyway, so um, it's just a great book. And when you tuck up, in, tuck up into your next meal, think about bee and thank a bee beforehand because they probably helped you put it on your table. And don't forget, we've got this book at the Lismore Environment Centre and we also sell beautiful locally sourced pure honeys. So come in and see us and definitely I can recommend this book as a present for yourself or other people. This is Jodie Adams from the Lismore Environment Centre signing off. Bye-bye. Are you looking for the courage to face the hard facts about our environmental crises? Do you want honest reporting on the global solutions that are at our fingertips? Would you like to know what simple, effective local actions you can take to make a positive difference to the state of the world today? 
Tune in to Environmental as Anything on 92.9 River FM every Saturday from 2 to 5 for all the news, interviews and analysis you need to make the future you want. For the future, we're hand in hand.